He might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the- I'm bored. Wait! Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking star quality. We're talking BB and beyond money. And we're talking, yeah, that girl's hot. Too bad about her tits. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, fuck off and die, cunt. <laughs> I mean, there's only like 12 dozen lines like that in this movie that you could have picked from. You know, honestly, my second choice was going to be, good night, books. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute i like a librarian i love it's just so, so good night books and of course mink stole but everyone we are discussing joshua grinnell's aka peaches christ 2010 horror comedy all about evil that has finally uh, in the past year been made readily available for public consumption Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the sordid story about how this went out of production and basically could not be discovered by anyone. Well, you could. You could find that DVD that was out of print, but you had to pay an ab- absorbent, absorbent. Oh, my God. What's the word? Absorbitant? Absorbitant, yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm off to a good start. But you had to pay an absorbitant amount of money to get it. And so, you know, with a movie you haven't seen, it's like, oh, do I want to, like, make that risk, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, because I hadn't seen this movie and you had. And I had to debate whether or not I was going to purchase it or just stream it on Shudder. I ended up opting for streaming. But you know what? I actually really like this movie, but... Yeah, it, it could have gone either way, right? Like, you don't really know what it means when somebody says, oh, it's a cult film. Like, For Ooh. sure. And yes, everyone, as Joe said, it is currently streaming on Shudder. Um, but yes, uh, Severin Films released a Blu-ray of this uh, last year. So, you know, if you did like this movie, please go out and purchase it because we love to support queer artists. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that you liked it, Joe. But before we get any further than that, let's bring in our guest who is waiting in the wings. Everyone. He is the host of Cult Cinema Circle, a podcast all about cult classic films that span a wide variety of genres, featuring behind-the-scenes tidbits, plot summaries, and, of course, personal opinions. Please welcome Jesse Crimple. Hi! How are y'all doing? Good! How are you? And welcome! I was in your wings, and I just want to let you know that I burned myself on the popcorn machine, and I'll have you, uh, I'll see to it that I have uh, a big settlement against, like, Bloody Disgusting or something. I don't know. (laughs) As long as you don't go on a murder spree, then we're fine. No promises. So, Jesse, (laughs) I have a question because you jumped at the chance to talk about this particular film. And I have to ask, Mm A, why? And B, when did you first see this? So, I would say I jumped at the chance of this because when you sent the shortlist of what you guys were covering, I was like, perfect. A movie I'm already going to cover on my show. I might as well just go on your show to cover it. (laughs) Makes enough sense. But also, there's something about this film I just enjoy. Me being a connoisseur of cult films and horror films and all of that, this definitely is in there, and we'll get into that. But also, you know, I I watched this movie, to answer your question, I watched this movie for the first time uh, really last year when it came on Shudder, 2022 or sure, something like that in the middle of yep. the year. And, you know, I, I really just fell in love with it. I was like, oh, this is 
this is this movie that I had heard of before and all. And I was like, okay, great. You know, and I just love how campy it is, how over the top it is. I also got to give some uh, props to Peaches Christ being that he is also a Maryland boy himself. <laughs> and I myself am as well, you know, go O's or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, but also this movie is such a love letter to someone like John Waters, obviously. And so, of course, I'm like, yes, I'm going to want to cover this movie. And, I just I love it so much and you know I would I oscillate between a three and a half and a four on it I think my most recent watch which was literally yesterday I gave it a four on Letterboxd and I'll keep it there too I that's so funny that you say that because yeah so I saw this for the first time last year I have to give a big shout out to friend of the show Matt Elliott because he had the DVD of this movie from 2010 and he got me to watch it and I was like oh my god like this is great Um, I wish it was available so we can cover it on the show Um, (laughs) but uh, yeah I um, I I gave it a three and a half when I first watched it and I did bump it up to a four on this rewatch because you know I mean look this is a low budget production as you said Jesse it's very reminiscent of a John Waters film everyone go back and listen to episode on female trouble but i just i had so much fun with it i mean i had fun with it the first time but i it was kind of like the thing where i was like you know what this deserves a four i will give it the four <laughs> <laughs> that's fair yeah but so, joe you said you like this so as a first time viewer um, what did you walk away thinking well i feel like we should caution people this is it's low budget but it doesn't look especially low budget like I actually thought this was going to look a lot cheaper and it's got quite a bit more polish I actually think Peaches Christ I mean obviously we know Peaches a little bit because we have spoken with him on the show for our Fright Night 1985 episode and you know he's doing great work with Michael Verratti on his Midnight Mass podcast obviously the in-person stuff I just feel like you can really see the passion and the just the reverence for old cinema like old horror cinema and I just thought, yeah, the movie is a bit of a delight, isn't it? Very, very much is. And we can get into that, too, because um, to, to you say that, Joe, that there was some background of like, hey, Natasha Leone, like <laughs> maybe, you know, having a bit of a an idea of old movies and old movie stars. So that's really interesting mm-hmm. to say that. Well, I will say, too, in terms of the way it looks. So, I mean, yeah, this is like Joshua Grinnell, you know, wrote and directed this. Um, we have a drag queen composer in Vincentos, but the cinematographer of this film is Tom Richmond. And this guy has shot, I mean, look, y'all, I'm just going to name a couple films here. Chopping Mall, Stand and Deliver, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka. Oh, Joe, Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes. Oh, that's one of the good ones. That's one of the good ones. There you go. <laughs> um, House of a Thousand Corpses, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. So I think that the, one of the reasons this film looks so good is because we have a really experienced cinematographer on hand. True. Also, Slums of Beverly Hills, which is a fucking great movie. I was going to mention that when I got to how Natasha <laughs> Leone got cast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it it helps that Peaches Christ has all of these connections to people because of his work in the drag community. So, you know, you watch this movie, and if you don't know, then all of a sudden, all the celebrity cameos, which many of them aren't even cameos, they're full-blown parts in the film – And I think people are really appreciative of that because in some ways he's giving them different types of roles than you might normally expect as well. I mean, Cassandra Peterson is here out of her Elvira drag getup wearing mom Mm -hmm. clothes. Yes, she is. (laughs) And she's great in the movie. Like She is. 
Okay, well, let, let's talk about how this got made, because um, I will say, y'all, the the, the, the the Blu-ray of this that Seven Films put out is very stacked. We've got, you know, like a, a 40-minute making of featurette. We've got the short film that it's based on is included in the Blu-ray. Also, Joe, you mentioned Michael Verratti. He has a 40-page booklet in this wow. Blu-ray because yep. when we get to the um, the roadshow the show did, uh, Michael Verratti was on that roadshow writing travel logs and posting them to Peaches Christ website. Oh, that's fun. Yes, and we're, but they aren't available anymore because that section of the website is now defunct. So the only way to read them apparently is by getting this Blu-ray. <laughs> there you go. You know what? If it helps to goose the sales of it, then it's a smart investment. And we are mm-hmm. not being paid to advertise this. I mean, we will welcome all financial <laughs> remuneration. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so yes, All About Evil, written and directed by Joshua Grinnell. I'm actually going to keep referring to him as Joshua Grinnell because Peaches Christ is his character. Um, There is a funny anecdote, though, because as we all know, Peaches Christ is a character in the movie. Yes. So when filming this, uh, Grinnell had three personas, and it would kind of depend on what he would do on stage or on set that day. So he was either Joshua, or he was Peaches, or he was Peachua. (laughs) And (laughs) depending on which persona he was in that day would determine, yeah, what the actress could do with him. Because if he was in Peach's mode, he was in actor mode. But Peachua was like a hybrid of the two where he had his face painted on. But that was it. And it confused Thomas Decker so bad because, like, he would be, like, you know, doing something with a take or whatever. And, like, literally, like, you have this just, like, Peach's face looking at you, just, like, judging you. And he's like, did I like anything that he did? Like, what is this? Well, we all know Peaches is known for her enormously arched eyebrows, too. So she always looks a little bit upset. (laughs) The judgment. The judgment is always there. (sighs) Well, as Joe said, you know, we had Peaches on our show um, for Fright Night. uh, Was it last year? Two years ago? Probably just like two years ago. Something like that, yeah. Um, (laughs) But just in case you don't know who Peaches is, just a really quick primer. So... Joshua Grinnell, as as Jesse said, grew up in Maryland. Uh, he went to Penn State for college, and his senior thesis film was a short film called Jizz Mopper, A Love Story. And it was in this short film that the character of Peaches Christ was born, although at the time, his professor was very, very Christian and said, can you please not say Christ? <laughs> right. It was actually uh, the cinematographer on the um, the shoot, actually. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Jesse. Much appreciated. Mm-hmm. So in, in that film, it was uh, Peaches Nevada, not Peaches Christ. <laughs> not as catchy. Not as catchy. Uh, but after that, Grinnell moved to San Francisco with no money and no job. Uh, he knew that he was going to be Peaches Christ, which would be his outlet while he pursued a filmmaking career. So during all this, he became the manager of the Bridge Theater when he was 23. And while this happened, though, his drag persona, Peaches Christ, was taking off in the queer scene of San Francisco. So in the summer of 1998, he merged the two things together, eventually creating Midnight Mass, a midnight movie event series that featured elaborate pre-show stage productions, guest stars, and drag spectacles. And the first show ever was Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, but fun fact, the second one was a sold-out screening of Showgirls. And bear in mind, this is the summer of 1998, so it was still not cool to like Showgirls at this time Mm -hmm. just proved he had good taste all along love it so eventually film producer mark cuban bought landmark theaters the company that owned and operated the bridge theater and Mm -hmm. he became very interested in peaches and midnight mass uh so interested in fact that cuban helped grinnell make a midnight mass tv show which 
I have to assume, like Elvira, like it was syndicated locally. Yeah, like a local thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Full confession, y'all, and God, if Peaches ever listened to this, I'm really sorry. I actually wasn't super familiar with Peaches Christ. Um, honestly, Joe, until we met her at our Nightmare on Elm Street 2 live recording way back in 2019. Well, I mean, I think part of this is it depends on how familiar you are with the drag scene, mm-hmm. but then also how familiar you are with like the San Francisco drag scene, which is not to say like, I mean, if you talk to people in the drag community, if you mention Peaches Christ, like well well well-known entity but i think unfortunately for a lot of noobs like you and i where uh our indoctrination into drag was something like rupaul's drag race yeah peaches has never appeared on the show doesn't need to appear on the show because she's actually too famous for it and so as a result you're kind of like oh i don't know who that is and that's the thing you know me like a little gable growing up in houston texas like i just like i didn't i'd always heard the name thrown around but i had no knowledge of who she was and what her drag was never not even to say what midnight mass was which of course she's turned that into a podcast now with michael Verratti. i think also too i mean like you know i had never really heard of her either i mean i'm not that i'm like closer to trace's age really and so like you know i think once i found out that like look up gay shit you know when you're like coming out and you're just like what are gay things i need to know about and like (laughs) you know just realizing different drag queens like you know seeing someone like coco peru on like logo tv you know what i mean and like being like who are these people like or whatever and finding out peaches christ and then on her little wikipedia page being like from maryland i was like wait a minute my eyebrows like you know raised because i'm like what like she's from this state i live in like uh, that piqued my interest in her at least um but i'm not like a super fan or anything like that of her really i was familiar with her barrel because of that and then also i was like oh yeah and she had that like weird movie that came out like and nobody (laughs) can ever see so it's like you know it's yeah exactly Okay, so so while Grinnell is getting Midnight Mass, like, it's becoming this hugely popular thing in the San Francisco scene, um, he also started making some short films. So, in 2001, he wrote and directed Season of the Troll. 2002 was A Nightmare on Castro Street, both of which featured Peaches Christ as a main character. Mm-hmm. In 2003, he makes a short film called Grindhouse, and the idea for Grindhouse came from someone asking, at a time when a lot of single-screen theaters were closing in San Francisco, someone asked Grinnell, what do you have to do to save these theaters? And he replied with, well, murder. (laughs) (laughs) What was the plot of Grindhouse? Um, Theater owner Deborah Tanise becomes the pioneer of of weekly produced gore films at a local single-screen theater. Um, Also, it's Deborah. Oh, Deborah. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) saying like the fucking it, it's like the joke you know you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable <laughs> i love you quoting view from the top in this episode oh my God. <laughs> so in that short film though grinnell kept thinking this is unfinished there is a kernel of an idea here that could be expanded to feature length so he went to his friend darren stein the director of jawbreaker previous episode jawbreaker is a previous episode although darren Stein, if you're listening come on the show right <laughs> yeah same with same with me i'll cover everything you want <laughs> But he asked Stein to produce a feature-length version of Grindhouse, and he agreed. So they got all their financing from a single source, a friend of Joshua Grinnell's father, a man named Robert Barber. And remember that name. With financing in place, they could begin casting. 
The first people cast were Mink Stoll and Cassandra Peterson because they were good friends of Grinnell's uh, by this point. Funnily enough, Mink Stoll was actually the very first celebrity guest at Midnight Mass, where they screened um, my one of my personal favorites of John Waters, uh, Desperate Living. Also because it's the only film where Mink Stoll has a lead role. Right. Makes sense. Uh, Darren Stein knew Thomas Decker, who at this time, uh, Joe Time Capsule, he was busy filming Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, so good, people. It's really, really good. He also, um, Thomas Decker was also back to Jawbreaker. He was actually in an episode of the movies that made us gay um, with the boys to- uh, Scott and Pete on there covering Jawbreaker and such a mo. I love him so much. So, yes. <laughs> I love Thomas Decker. I'm actually a little oh, jealous sure. of my husband because he like talks to Decker via Instagram about music things which is not what i'm knowledgeable at oh right because thomas decker is also like a very well-known and well-respected musician yes exactly he's also like in the metal scene too uh, over in san francisco and la i love that grinnell and stein go to the set of terminator the sarah connor chronicles and just talk to decker in his trailer again this is before decker had come out so his team did not want him doing this movie because he had also just gotten the gig for the nightmare on elm street remake which you know before it came out was like ooh, that's a big get yeah <laughs> like he literally left this set to go to that one right uh the other big name uh, before we get to natasha leone of course um is noah segan and mm-hmm. i'm not gonna lie he is my mvp of this movie but the f- <laughs> darren stein got him because stein was really good friends with marcel sarmiento one of the directors of 2008's dead girl okay mm. I, I think we're just gonna have to actually like cover dead girl on our show joe it keeps coming up it does i don't even does. know what that is Ooh, boy, oh jesse <laughs> um it is like a toxic masculinity the movie basically oh. it's noah segan and shiloh fernandez from the evil dead remake um they are two idiot teenagers who find a zombie girl chained in the basement of this abandoned factory and they proceed to rape her Mm-hmm. Oh, dear God. Oh, yeah. Wow. And the movie goes from there. So it's family-friendly entertainment then. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> now, the trick, though, was finding someone to play Deborah. They met with some of Stein's Jawbreaker cast, including Judy Greer and Julie Benz. They also talked to Busy Phillips, and they had designs on Feruza Balk, but as far as I can tell, they, they, they never actually got in touch with her. You know what? I could imagine all of them doing this role, and I think they would have all been really good in different ways. Sure, but like also Busy Phillips, question mark? Well, that that was kind of the name that I was like, whoa, that, that that doesn't mix in with the rest of this cast. However, I mean, Busy Phillips is an excellent comedian. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's true. We've never seen her in a role like this, which is, I think, maybe why I was excited by it. That would have been a serve if Judy Greer was in there, because I would have been like, it's like Jawbreaker 2.0. This is great. Oh, see, that is true. For me, I'm kind of like, I agree with, I mean, look, all of these women would have been great. I think Feruza Balk is a very obvious choice for this. Right. Yeah. Especially at this point. Yes. I actually would be most interested to have seen uh, Julie Benz in this role, because I love Julie Benz, but, mm-hmm. you know, we've gotten to see her be evil on Buffy, but like... I've never seen her do something, again, like like this. Yeah. There's this weird movie with her from the 2000s. It's her and these other two chicks. Um, do you know what movie I'm talking about? Oh, my God. Like, uh, I'm sorry. You have to be more specific than a movie with Julie Benz and other two <laughs> chicks from it's the mid-2000s. No, literally, it's like the early 2000s. I'm going to have to look it up. Oh, my God. Like, literally, it's so weird because they're playing, like, they are playing these old ladies, kind of. But, like, hmm. I don't even know, man. It's so weird. Like, this... Um, I think it's like, because it's just so 
out there. Like it's obviously capitalizing on like her being in Is it Bad Girls from Valley High? Yes, like that one. I'm just like, what is this film, dude? Cause it's her, Monica Kina, and Nicole Billerback, who Monica Kina shout uh, out. Okay. okay, I'm sorry. Also, um Janet Lee and Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> I don't understand it either, Trace. What is that I don't care. It, it is Janet Lee's final film role. Oh god. Okay. That is wild. Um, know, so yeah, man. I seek that shit out. Well, so okay, so Grinnell actually though did have Natasha Leone in mind for this role, but he never even thought it was a possibility because he didn't know her. Luckily for him, as you already said, Jesse, uh, the cinematographer on All About Evil was Tom Richmond, and yeah. because he had shot 1998's Slums of Beverly Hills, which by the way, very good movie, he's sitting there talking to Grinnell like, oh yeah, you know, I shot her on this, and Grinnell's like, oh, I would love to have her as Deborah, and he. <laughs> Richmond just pulls out his cell phone, calls Natasha Leone, and goes, hey, I have someone who wants to talk to you, and just hands the phone to Grinnell. Jesus Christ, can you imagine? Uh, I'm not ready, I need to psych myself up. Literally. I, I also, like, I love that he just, like, had her phone number. Like, just, mm-hmm. whatever, it's all good. Well, from this would have been 10 years prior, too, and, you know, like, Natasha Leone was, like, really big on the indie scene in the 90s, yeah. but I'm a cheerleader, Songs of Beverly Hills, but then she kind of, like, went mainstream with the American Pie films. She had some troubles in the mid 2000s so this yep. kind of would have been her back on her kind of career upswing okay yeah. hmm. i agree but yeah so you know uh he calls leon they're talking and she asks grinnell like oh well, well, tell me about the story blah 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 and basically he starts talking about it and then she goes oh is she based on doris wishman um and this doris wishman by the way is a famous sexploitation film director and producer from the 70s and he was like oh my god yes that is who this character is inspired by and based on and it was kind of a done deal at that point Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they get all this set up about ten days before shooting because they were planning on shooting at the bridge, uh, mm-hmm. because obviously it was home for midnight mass and for you know Grinnell's work. The owners of the bridge were like, "No, you can't shoot here." And again, this is ten days before filming, and so they luckily got an in with the Victoria Theater, and the deal was done. They could not afford like again a ton of special effects, but Darren Stein excellent producer that he is had a connection at spectral motion a video production company and while they couldn't afford their services stein was like can you just give us some stuff that you're throwing away and so they just come with a van full of body parts yeah and just like make it work bitch it's like who do i have to blow to get prosthetics over here exactly (laughs) right the shoot seems like it went okay. There were a couple of issues and hiccups and whatever, but nothing like too dramatic or noteworthy. So the film has its world premiere at the San Francisco International Film Festival at the Castro Theater on May 1st, 2010. And at the time, they held the record for the fastest Castro Theater sellout in the history of the festival. Mm-hmm. That's fun. So there's been a couple of festivals, um, but then Mark Cuban and Landmark Theater. So even though Landmark like was the parent company of the bridge, I guess he couldn't like make the owners let let Grinnell shoot the film there. Mm-hmm. So right. Cuban was like, "Let me help you with this. Uh, doing a cross country road trip to get the word out about this film." And this road tour was like a William Castle inspired Peaches Christ road show. They went to about 18 different markets between May and I want to say September of 2010. Hired local performers, sometimes members of the cast were actually there, like Thomas Decker, like Mink Stoll, like Cassandra Peterson. If they were hiring local performers, they would send them videos uh, showing them dance moves they could use and also how to costume and make up themselves. And remember, y'all, this was back in the days of early YouTube. So, you know, yes. it was very much like, you know, unlisted videos, all that kind of stuff. Oh, my God. Like, Well, so and curious. it's really interesting because the booklet that Varadi has in this Blu-ray, like it's done by date and by city. 
city. And it's so funny mm-hmm. because this, the first stop after the world premiere in San Francisco was in Austin, Texas at the Alamo Draft House. And I was I was living in Austin at this time. <laughs> so right. it's one of those things where I'm I'm you reading dumb, like, if you had known you could have gone, right? That's well. the thing. I'm reading like Michael's journal about like, oh yeah, like May whatever of twenty ten at Austin, Texas. And I'm like, God, what was I doing that day? <laughs> what was I actually doing, huh? I was like graduating from high school or something. So I mean shit, whatever. I was a junior in college, thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but but here's the thing. This was a very successful road show. And again, all these markets were aired. It sold out screenings. Uh, when they went to New York, Natasha Leone showed up and she made a really funny crack about how she was like, wow, I've slept with so many people in this audience. And it's like really, really <laughs> fun. <laughs> the problem is, and again, this is kind of what we're going back to with like, okay, how, how do you know Peaches Christ? If you're in those major markets, mm-hmm. you'll be familiar with this. But for mainstream, like general, like not in a major fucking city, people they don't know what this movie is mm-hmm. no so we got to get distribution <sighs> when it comes to distribution uh here's the thing this is where the problems start oh wait also before you move into that though i do like the story about this tour can i tell it real quick sure um so pretty much as part of this tour and everything um one of the places that they went was actually milwaukee wisconsin where they went to the oriental theater and i myself am a huge rocky horror person and they had a rocky horror cast there um one of the longest ones in the you know history and all that kind of stuff right so peaches goes there and a lot of these things would be like you know oh hi hello hi hello Da, 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 da. And because it was like this fun underground railroad of like underground drag scenes that she was a part of because she had toured, <laughs> you know, um, and so she but if they didn't have an underground drag scene like Milwaukee did, you know, they didn't have that. They would reach out to the Rocky Horror people. Right. But anyway, so her and Mink, they go to this, you know, live show and everything. And a, a person comes up to them and is like, oh, I'm such a huge fan of you guys. Like, can you sign this thing for me? And they were a performer within that um cast of Rocky Horror at um, the Oriental, and that person in particular is none other than Brian Furcus, also known as Trixie Mattel. Um, which Which is so funny if you know anything about Trixie Mattel, because she's very much said... The way I got started in drag was I started doing Rocky Horror. I did the Usherette Trixie in the beginning, and then I just kind of turned that into a drag thing. And then now (laughs) here's millions of dollars later. I was going to (laughs) say. And also because I think she's your age, Trace. Like, she's literally only a couple of years older than, you know, she's around your age. So, like, you guys would have been, like sophomores junior in college and so she's just like meeting this drag queen and like being stole and just being like hi can you sign this thing for me i love your work oh danny devito i love your work you know it's like <laughs> i just thought it was so cool you know i'm sorry i i, I <laughs> a it's been a while since i've heard someone say oh they're your age um but <laughs> No, because, like, when you think of it, yeah. Oh, no, 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 I know. I'm just making it. <laughs> but I literally had no... I, I just assumed Trixie Mattel was a lot older than me. But, yeah, no, she is six months younger than me. <laughs> yeah, so she would have literally been in college the same time as you. And, like, it's just so funny when you think about it. Like, yeah, she probably would have been doing this. And she wasn't known because she she was, like, a baby queen. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I just thought that was like such a surf. That's really fun. I want to be making millions of dollars right now. Mom, you're going to have to get more talented, sweetie. <laughs> I guess so. And you also have to sell your soul to RuPaul. Oops. Oh, well. Well, honestly, <gasps> that okay. <laughs> that's the thing. That when I watch a lot of these drag shows, be it Drag Race, be it the Boulay Brothers, or just 
watching a drag show. I'm just like, I could never do it because I don't have the makeup skills at all. Like the fabric that you have to be very creative to do that kind of shit. And I'm just, I don't have that capability. I mean, it's a skill that you can learn, but yes. <laughs> I, I think you have to also like know fashion, which I, that to me is, that's like taste, right? Like you can't learn taste. It would be a stumbling block. You would probably have to partner with someone who could help you. Do you want to start another venture? <laughs> uh, that is definitely not me. <laughs> okay. When it comes to distribution, though, again, like I said, we had an issue here. Because, yeah, for the past 13 years, this movie has been really hard to find. Mm -hmm. So Robert Barber, that, that sole financier that I mentioned earlier, he was looking at the independent film distribution model of 2010 and basically goes, this is theft. Like, I've put all this money into this movie, and I don't want to sell it to a distributor because I'm not going to make a return on my investment. And because he's basically a friend of Grinnell's family, Grinnell's like, you know – you're right. <laughs> like, sure. Unfortunately, you're probably not going to get this money back. <laughs> yeah, but you had to have known that going into it. And also then the decision they end up making virtually guarantees that they will not get any money back. Basically. So because of this, though, no distribution deal was ever made. And the film was released on DVD independently mm -hmm. through Grinnell's Peaches Christ Productions. And because yeah. of that, that's why it's been out of print for years. There was never a streaming deal. So you could not find this film on any streaming service. And that's why, thankfully, I mean, last year, you know, as I said, several films released that Blu-ray and as of this recording, it is streaming on Shutter, And that actually came from what I understand. It became, that was a, because um, I also listened to, go listen to Peaches Crisis podcast about All About Evil, because she did do one. I was listening to it at work uh, probably last week or something. And in the doc, in the little doc or whatever on the Blu-ray, um, it does say, because I do own it. Um, but, you know, um, she does say, like, she did get deals like you know but it wasn't her money to to use so she couldn't say yes or no i think she also said that it was like they were very low offers like they were what you would expect but at the same time if you've got this guy who sounds suspicious about making a deal it didn't sound like it was very enticing True. and then also actually the way that um shutter got this movie was because sam zimmerman literally went to peaches and was like hey this is before the pandemic where right. severin had reached out before and was like hey like you know we should do this and sam zimmerman was literally like hey i also want to get this on our streaming service and then it just took a minute it, but like you know it it happened that way i, I guess that's good because full disclosure I, I don't have the budget for this film i know it made about eight thousand dollars in however many theaters it played at. i only have like it opened in one theater on july 16th of 2010 mm. but here's the thing how attractive would a film like this honestly i think natasha leone is the big draw here because she's the only quote-unquote star in it Correct. at the time but I don't know how attractive this film would have been to a lot of distributors, which is maybe why there were lowball efforts. I mean, anyway, uh, but uh, reviews for this are okay. We've got an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an average score of 6.7 out of 10, and we've got a letterbox score of 6.6 .6 out of 10. And uh, as we've all mentioned, the cult is growing slowly but surely. Well, I think that's pretty impressive considering how few people could see it until last year. Yeah, and people coming out of the woodworks who had, like, remembered seeing the DVD for it. Oh, can I also tell a fun story about you guys' show? Because I'm a fan of it. So I use your podcast to go to sleep sometimes and whatever. <laughs> and so, because I do... We're like the white noise machine. I know, right? But anyway, so like one of the episodes I put on was Zombievers, which is a great movie. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about that episode, um, Trace ends it by seeing the Zombievers <laughs> theme song. 
song. Yes, famously. He did that without telling me. Yeah, I know. And like literally, like I put it on and I don't think it was the one I put on. I put on a, a few other ones and it just like came up in the lineup or whatever. And I wake up in the middle of the night just hearing Trace oh, God. singing the song. Crooning zombies. And I just was like, <laughs> I'm turning this off and going back to bed. What is going on here? <laughs> Like, so literally. I don't actually know how many people listen that far because yeah, it's, it's at the very end of the episode after the outro, which makes me think that it was like, uh, or it, I just forgot to put a timer on to stop it. So like, literally, <laughs> it was just like. I mean, that's why people should always listen to the end of the episode because not only do we tell you what we're covering next week, but also we sometimes put Easter eggs in there. Like that thing? Oh my god, it's so funny. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so, but what you're saying is though, is that Joe, you're going to sing next time. No. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely you're not. the I mean, you're the Mariah Carey here, Trace. It's fine. Of course, of course. <laughs> All right. So yeah, th- that is how this movie came to be. Let's talk about what it's about. All right. So, now that we know why it was filmed at the Victoria Theater, that is in fact where the movie is also set. Mm-hmm. So, we open the Victoria Theater in 1984 as little Debbie Tennis, who is played by Michaela Rosario, is reassured by her father, Walter, who is played by Robert Calvert, that she has star quality. And she is there to basically sing a song at the opening of the children's matinee of The Wizard of Oz. So she's dressed like Dorothy. Her mom is dressed like the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm sure there's absolutely no reason for that at all. (laughs) Doesn't this give you uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane vibes? 100%, yeah. And you you jumped over about the third short that Grinnell made is actually a whatever happened to Baby Jane, like, knockoff with old peaches christ oh that's great (laughs) Mm -hmm. so uh things do not turn out well for little debbie she is uncomfortable on stage she gets catcalled by a mean boy and then she proceeds to pee herself and that also causes a mild electrocution (laughs) also why did he call her debbie penis it doesn't even rhyme fun like what the hell Okay, so Joe, you said Deborah sh- Tennis. It's it's supposed to be Tennis, but yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't. Like, penis doesn't rhyme with Tennis unless it was no. Tennis, which is not. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because kids are shit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, we all of us <laughs> know that kids are shit. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So her mother, Tammy, who is played by Julie Caitlin Brown, is just kind of off in the wings laughing at her. So you really get a sense that her dad is the nice, kindly one who is very much into theatricality, whereas mm-hmm. her mom is a huge bitch. Um, oh my I, God. I, so, Jesse, I feel like you probably know this already, so don't answer. Yeah. But Joe, guess who they wanted for the role of her mother? Ooh. Who? Oh, I thought I saw this somewhere and I can't remember. Gina Gershon. Yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been a, such a Fuck. cunt serve? Oh my yes! god. Oh, it would have been so god good. Damn. I mean, this woman is really good too, to the point where when she, she dies first, I was actually kind of sad because I wanted her to stay around longer. She gives me that androgynous, like, the, oh my god, she's great. She'd be a great bio queen. A hundred percent. And I, I also, honestly, look, if you don't know what you're getting into when you watch this movie, the fact that the prologue involves a child pissing herself and getting electrocuted by her piss Mm -hmm. is kind of fantastic (laughs) it is really funny yeah it's the right amount of like there's some horror there's some camp it's a little bit silly but also yeah like 
it's mean. And I do think that this yeah. movie is mean in a lot of ways. Although yeah. I will say there was one point where I wanted it to be meaner and it didn't go there. And I was a little disappointed. Ooh, mm. I'm excited to talk about whatever set piece that is. <laughs> mm. We'll get into it. Yeah. So in case you did not know that Joshua Grinnell is very into old classic Hollywood films, we have these old timey credits. It's so good. Oh, my God. I love how um, Darren Stein gets the Carnival of Souls one. I love that. Mm -hmm. And like Vin Santos gets the um, white zombie poster, I believe. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And these were just like done by a friend of Peaches. Like they literally were just like, hey, can you do this? And this is what he brought back. And they were just like, and they this look is great. fucking great. <laughs> like, yeah. These are awesome. And I, I found that uh, Vincentos's score is, I mean, I'm terrible, famously terrible at spotting scores, mm-hmm. hearing scores. Mm-hmm. And this is a really nice showcase for that score throughout the film. Yeah, the, the, the score. It, I, I'm proud of you, Joe. I'm very proud of you, actually. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it does this thing where it really does perfectly kind of capture the tone of this movie. Like, it's over-the-top, silly, serious, scary, funny. Like, it, it somehow combines all of these elements into one score. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. So we jump ahead to the present day. So presumably 2009 or 2010. We are at the San Francisco Public Library. And this is where grown up Deborah, now played by Natasha Leone, works with co-worker Evelyn, played by Mink Stoll. And we learn immediately that Deborah's father has died recently. He has bequeathed her the theater. Mm-hmm. Evelyn is very concerned about this. She's like, Ooh, I don't know. Like, maybe you don't want to take this on. It seems like it could be a bit much. And Deborah will not hear this. She is passionate about this. She wants to make her father proud. So off she goes to work where she meets Mr. Twiggs. Okay, wait, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm going too fast. Before, Here we go. Before we get, I, I, okay, I, I don't think it could be understated how good Natasha Leone's delivery is here. I think her character, when she really starts to like sob and ramble, it is very reminiscent of her character, uh, Megan from, but I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. Like she's like, you know, oh, the daddy always said the show must go on. And then she just starts like sobbing, but it's like this, mm-hmm. it's a very Natasha Leone way of sobbing. I also forgot that Mink Stoll plays her mom in, but I'm a cheerleader. Yes, she does oh. with Bud Court. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. I haven't yeah. seen that movie forever. I also, yeah. I got the Blu-ray they released of it, oh, I want to say two or three years ago, because it has the director's cut with like five mm-hmm. minutes of never-before-seen footage, and I just haven't watched it yet. Is it just oh more muff diving, or...? Uh no, I it, it, well maybe actually I think there's a masturbation scene. <laughs> I think it's also like they show this like photo, they show this like video of like this like stereotypical like butch lesbian, and like that's one of the videos that they show or whatever. Also, I love how um Natasha Leon, uh, uh Deborah she just has like this Jean Grey like streak of white in her hair now because why not? That's what pee electrocution does to you. Exactly. Well, actually, uh, it is famously known that if you get a head trauma, like I know somebody who fell off a ladder and they had a streak or like a splotch of white. So it is a thing that can happen to people if they have a trauma. Yeah. And well, also, because we can also talk about horror references in this movie because there's mm-hmm. bunches of them. But like that is also kind of like uh, Nancy from um, Nightmare on Elm yes. Street, of course. Right. And also, like, I love um, Deborah. And Evelyn living their like party girl fantasy. Love that. Good for them. <laughs> I also love how we keep calling show business the business of show. Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> 
because it's this movie is full of wordplay right it I, it's actually one of the reasons why i find it very endearing because i love puns so all of the names of the shorts in this movie were so they're so just good. up my alley i'm curious joe do you actually find, do you find this script to be particularly witty uh i think it's savvy mm-hmm. i don't know that i would call it like it, it it's clever and fun I think that Grinnell is probably putting in things that he is most interested in, but that contributes in my mind to some of the cult appeal where I think a lot of people, they're going to be like, I don't really understand what this is saying, but it's not over the heads of the audience. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, I mean, look, if I was going to show this to a non-horror fan, uh, I don't. I don't know if they would get much out of it unless maybe they were also into drag because I think there's a lot of drag sensibilities in this film. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. Peaches Christ as a character outstanding. But yeah, I I, I do think there's maybe a niche quality to this. Yeah, totally. Okay, so Deborah goes off to work. As I said, she meets Mr. Twiggs, the projectionist played by (laughs) Jack Donner. And I gather that he's meant to be a combination of William Castle and Boris Karloff. Mm, I could see Boris Karloff for sure. I guess because he's the projectionist. Mm, Yeah, maybe. I mean, he helps Deborah with her antics and and her gimmicks in the theater. So I could see that. I mean, it was a direct quote I read. So. Oh, well, ah! (laughs) yeah. Egg on my face. Egg on my face. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I think Jack Downer also, he was just into the weird of it all, really, and he just, like, sunk his teeth in there. And he's now since passed away, so, of course, rest in power. But, like, you know, he just does such a good job with this. Like, with his little ad-libs he has and all that throughout the movie, I just think it's, like, a really memorable performance for me. I just, honestly, for me, the name Mr. Twigs mm-hmm. <laughs> is great. <laughs> Does he even have a first name? We don't know. I don't even care because every time Deborah's like, Mr. Twigs. <laughs> so almost immediately, we're also introduced to teen patron Stephen, who is very clearly, you know, in love with movies, uh-huh. in love with the idea of movies, wants to help save this theater, even though it's kind of like, kid, what are you doing here all the time? But um, yes, baby Thomas Decker oh my God. looking delicious. I love him. I love him too. And you know what's so nice too is that like this really, he looks back on this movie, it seems like so fondly, so fondly. Because he literally was like, this is how I became friends with like the twins and Ashley Fink and all that. But it's also like where he even said like, he got to discover his identity, which mm-hmm. is obviously very much coming out. And yeah, when you're around a bunch of other Moes who are also doing this and you yourself have been, you know, you were one of the kids in Village of the Damned, you were a child actor. And so especially in the time that he grew up in, you know, where gay wasn't a known, well, it wasn't a thing that was like lauded, like, you mm-hmm. know, I can totally. I think we all understand that being gay men and who have who had to go through that struggle. The thing with Decker's journey is interesting because I mean I think the first time I ever saw him, I mean outside of Village of the Dam, which I don't even count, uh, was Heroes, and right. you know he didn't. I don't think he officially came out until he uh, until he got married in 2017. Yep, but there was. All that drama, because, you know, he he, he was like an up-and-coming like, star at this mm-hmm. time, which is right. why his team didn't want to take the movie. 
but he kind of like like he didn't disappear, but he went into like like more indie and smaller films. He stopped doing mainstream stuff. Yep. But there was always that drama because wasn't it Brian Fuller who outed him? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Okay, wait, hold. On. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. I was um, going to say before we put that into the episode, let's uh, double yeah. check that. Okay, all right, here we go. So basically, in 2017, this is the same year that Decker got married his husband. Um, mm-hmm. Heroes co-executive producer and writer Brian Fuller outed Decker during a speech at Outfest. Mm. While Fuller didn't mention Decker by name, he talked about a gay actor on the show whose character was also gay until the actors' team insisted that he be straight. Yeah, because I remember watching Heroes and always thinking, oh, the gay best friend of uh-huh. Penetier, yeah. and they just never go there with the character. Well, he even talked about that um, when he was on the Santa Croner Chronicles, when they came and saw him to pitch in this movie to be in, um, where it was very much a straight set because this is a military show really mm-hmm. um from what i understand i never watched it but i got that vibe that episode was set at a military base yes and so <laughs> but yeah so like but it was it's a very action heavy show and like obviously there's that but they even like uh some of the people on set made fun of him of how he like held his gun because he probably held it in a gay way quote unquote yeah. you know so it's like yeah it's really interesting watching his, because um, you know they, they have the he's on the commentary for this movie, and he's also there's like a roundtable interview with mm-hmm. him and Peaches and stuff, and it's interesting hearing his vocal inflection today compared to how it was when this movie was made. I'm so glad Is you he said more that. Trace. Comfortable with himself? Is that it? Yes. He. Yeah. he I, I'm saying this as a fact, not as a judgment, but he does sound more effeminate today. Um, he sounds more like lived in queer today than he did in nice. 2010 when he was still like struggling with his identity. When you right. hear him in this movie, I'm like, is this even the same person? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I, because I've also listened to him like on the podcast that he was on and like all this. And I was just like, he doesn't even sound like the same guy like a little bit. Because somebody probably told him, talk butch. Yeah. And I think any younger listeners, I mean, like, again, we're old grandmas here. But like, you know, it's true that like, I mean, we all know of a time where, like, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, looked upon to be out or gay or anything like that. And so that's why, you know, to have these movies that you're able to, you know, um, to give that praise to, I think it's really nice. I just imagine, again, his team, these same fucking people that are like, no, 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 make his character on this TV show straight because we can't have anyone even think that he might be gay. Mm -hmm. I just imagine their faces. (laughs) When he actually just says, fuck y'all, I'm doing this Peaches Christ movie. (laughs) But also, he's the straight man in this movie, right? I mean, he's on record as saying that he wishes he could have been one of the other characters because they all get to have way more fun and go big. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, he has to be the straight man of the ensemble. But yeah, I mean, when you look at the film as a whole, you're kind of thinking... There's something just a little bit odd about this bunch, isn't there? Well, because Noah Segan is a straight actor, but he's playing gay in this movie. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. So there is one problem with Deborah's plan to bring this theater back to prestige, and that would be... Tammy, her mom. I saw some people refer to her as stepmom. I I couldn't figure out if it was one or the other, but meh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. So Tammy has plans to sell the theater to Bed Bath and Beyond. And, uh... <laughs> Little did she know. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> which was supposed, to, which was Walmart in Grindhouse, which I think is really funny. <laughs> Oh, right. that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, well, flash forward 13 years, Bed Bath & Beyond is going bankrupt. <laughs> no. 
At the time, they would have had money to burn. Uh. Yes, yes, yes. So in case we were wondering, the time has not gotten any better to their relationship. She's still belittling Deborah, and uh, she's even physically burning her, as you mentioned in your intro, Jesse. Yes. She's, you know, like as someone who worked the concession in a movie theater, <laughs> you do not want to get your hand anywhere near the popper. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. <laughs> So right away, we get our very first murder. Deb kind of goes into a state and she just stabs her a bunch of times. And we get lines from both Friday the 13th as well as Psycho. And uh, kind of Wizard of Oz. Sure. Yeah, Wicked Bitch is dead. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's the Psycho one? Oh, God, Mother, Blood, Blood. Yes. And we only know that because we literally covered it last week. Oh, correct. Yes. But no, yeah. Killer mommy, killer. I won't, Jason. I won't. Blood. Oh, God. Mother, blood, blood. The wicked bitch <laughs> is dead. So good. <laughs> oh, God. It's, it's good. And herein begins Natasha Leon's vocal journey throughout this movie because I feel like she adopts... 10 different accents okay. so th there is a reason for this so a uh apparently the prologue was only like written into the script because grinnell had to be like oh there has to be an incident to the that shows why she flips into crazy so fast in the present day part of the film sure it's like every cold open in in an 80s horror film where somebody gets injured and then that explains what's happening in the present day exactly but they started modeling deborah slash deborah on various famous actresses so she goes through a Catherine Hepburn accent. She goes through a Mae West accent. And they kind of transition as the film goes on. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I, I don't have an issue with it at all. I can imagine people who maybe don't get the references thinking, oh, it sounds different here. But she's playing different characters each time she does it too so right. Right. yeah but also literally i mean th this her change in demeanor happens like between scenes <laughs> it really does <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we're still post-murder and unfortunately we have an entire theater full of people who are waiting for blood feast to begin uh excuse me i was gonna say it was full of people joe <laughs> like i, I don't well, know about i mean <laughs> There's a healthier crowd than I would have imagined. Sure, exactly. Sure. Based on like, oh, like this theater's going under, but you need to sell it. Like there's at least there's more than 10 people in this theater. Right. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> They're Obviously nothing compared to the end. But. <laughs> so Deborah, like most people who work downstairs at the theater, has no fucking idea what a projectionist does. And she inadvertently plays the surveillance tape, which is the murder. Mm -hmm. on the big screen now and people lap it up to such an extent that mr twiggs basically just goes into showman mode he covers for her and says hey this is why we need independent theater and we can't sell it to the big theater chains so this yeah. is where the commentary of the film comes in and i i like what grinnell is doing here i don't really think he like th this is very deep commentary but as a person who like ran a a single screen theater, I, I, I as you said, I appreciate the passion here. Yeah, and I think it plays nicely into you know Deborah's relationship with her father, who had a kind of vaudeville act going on. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you know anything about Grinnell and Peaches, then this feels like what we would do before we start the screening. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Did you guys have any kind of like um single screen theaters that you were like aware of and had like fond memories of or anything? No. I mean cuz I grew up in the suburbs of Houston, so like I was never down I think there was a theater downtown, but I mean, I wasn't going down there. 
Mm, true. I didn't have one when I was growing up, but when I went to university, there was like a, a one screen that was a couple blocks away and it would do like second run revival movies like Devil Bills. It's actually where I ended up getting married on the big screen. So. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. They they would do a Rocky Horror Picture Show on Halloween as well. I do think, though, because so, I mean, obviously, the, the Alamo Draft House is like a big corporation today. And I mean, mm-hmm. it was, it was always, sorry, it's always been a corporation. But um, mm-hmm. the one that it wasn't downtown Austin was a two screen Alamo draft house. And it no longer exists. It was a victim of the pandemic, but the draft house in general shows tons of repertory screenings all the time. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's not a single screening theater, obviously anymore, but they, I mean, like I I went and saw freeway there last week. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I, so yeah, I didn't grow up. I grew up in like the middle of nowhere, uh, but not really, but like uh, we had like (laughs) flagship cinemas, which technically was not single Mm. screen, but it was smaller than like the regal theater that we had you know what i mean so yeah. like that kind of thing or amc or whatever so maybe a bit more personality yeah a little bit i mean it, it only had so many screens and they didn't show every single movie and it was like right next to the community college so that was nice um but i will give a shout out i haven't been there a ton but the charles theater in baltimore you know they're kind of a single screen if not maybe another screen too um but they're kind of the art house place i went and saw like anime night there um back Ooh, nice. in the day so that's where i first saw like perfect blue shout out perfect blue paprika i literally went and saw akira like the day after christmas there one time or the day before christmas (laughs) oh my god whatever akira was a film school screening in my asian horror film class it's Mm -hmm. lovely and i'm looking at it on my shelf right now so uh, (laughs) oh i think we're i'm gonna make us cover it i think one day you definitely should I haven't seen it since college, so I would actually welcome that opportunity. Okay, so the immediate disaster has been put to bed. So what we do is Twigs takes the body and we bring it up to the attic where we're just going to start piling up corpses. And (laughs) Stephen falls for this lie initially. So he congratulates Deb on her surveillance slaughter film. It's like, ooh, it's a new thing, which is kind of amusing, right? If you look at when this movie is coming out in 2009, 2010, like this would have been right around the time when paranormal activity was breaking out. So this idea of, yeah, like using surveillance footage in found footage horror would have been very popular at the time. Well, I mean, I, I I love the dramatic irony of this, right? Like, all these people think they're watching a regular horror film, but it's actually a snuff film. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, Stephen then goes home, and this is our first introduction to his mother, Linda, who is played by Cassandra Peterson. And she's an interesting figure because she clearly wants him to do different things with mm-hmm. his life than what he's doing. He wants to go into animation, and she's just like, uh, we don't see a lot of dead bodies in Disney films. But I think at the end of the day, the undercurrent for her character is just that she's worried about her son growing up. Like, she's a very protective mother, but she loves him. It's kind of interesting, though, because she is, if we're kind of going on this kind of like John Waters parallelism kind of thing, she is kind of playing the role that Mink Stoll would have played in one of John Waters' earlier films. That's right. fair. That's yeah. actually, yeah. And it's just fun to to see her in a very different light. Well, it's so rare 
to see her out of drag. I know. It's like this and like kind of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but like she's still like in biker drag. You know what I mean? Right. I will say it because she apparently hated her costumes. (laughs) She hated her wardrobe. (laughs) (laughs) Too frumpy. Well, and also, too, it's like she, I mean, Cassandra Peterson is a literal god um, and all of this, but like I think she was kind of self conscious about, you know, doing this because she was so used to doing this one character that she's so famous for. Well, um, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't necessarily even think it's that, oh, she's so used to the one character. I think it's more so that Elvira, again, as drag, that's like, that's her confidence booster. Like, mm-hmm. she ha- she's not Cassandra Peterson, which is Elvira. She's Elvira. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she, because she doesn't really get to be herself or be an actress as Cassandra Peterson. Like, that's just out of her wheelhouse. That's true. I mean, once again, we'll we'll say it to the back of the audience. She's really good in this movie. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, okay, so Steven ends up going back to the theater. I, I think it's the next night. It might be the next Friday, but <laughs> whatever. He, he he ventures back to the theater, and he is very excited to see that the crowd is growing. The notoriety of the theater is expanding to the point that even local drag queen Peaches Christ, a.k.a. Joshua Grinnell, is now frequenting the theater. What do we think of this uh- uh, I want to say it's a cameo, but Peaches kind of is a character in this movie. <laughs> yeah, like she's got lines. It's not like she just appears in the one scene. I think it's just a nice, fun little nod to just this ridiculousness of this movie of like, yes, of course, Peaches is going to be in this movie because <laughs> like they even say like, you know, oh, do you know that that's like Peaches Christ? She's like so known in the drag scene. So it's not the same exactly, but it's kind of like how John Waters puts himself in every single film he's ever directed pretty much. I guess it, I, and I am not not coming down on this at all but it's not like john waters puts himself in a movie and someone's like oh my god that's famous director john waters no of course <laughs> not right right <laughs> and again i mean like at the end of the day like this was like you said a kernel of what could be so maybe when he was thinking this is like you know what just fuck it let's put peaches in it let's let's do it that's honestly look if i'm grinnell i'm like look this is my independent production i will I mean, he doesn't know at this point that he'll be distributing this <laughs> independently like on his own terms but i'm like you know what i'm gonna do whatever the fuck i want well, i think it's also reflective of of the tongue-in-cheek nature of the movie like Mm -hmm. if you know of this group then you're also going to recognize a bunch of other people like there's a bunch of other drag queens including his close friend Heclina who just passed away that's in this movie Uh, a bunch of other people who would frequent the midnight mass screenings and productions are in the crowd as audience members throughout the film so I think part of it is just like this is my community it's a love letter to them as much as to the old films that I love because he had to call on some favors because they worked for free well that's the other thing you're making a movie for zero dollars <laughs> so you call in all the favors i mean this mm-hmm. movie is at least under a million dollars i mean because even gbf technically like looks a little better than it like kinda mm. but it's on the <laughs> same playing field oh my god okay magic words though i love gbf so much <laughs> oh my god for folks who don't know that's darren stein's other film yeah he directed it and he also has natasha leone in it so yes Mm -hmm. so important to note deborah is no longer referring to herself as deborah she is now deborah tenise and so this is the name that she offers when she is complimented by gore girl veronica who is played by kat turner and this will be her next victim I could see some people watching this movie and feeling like, well, 
why is this character so mean to random people? Like, she's just arbitrarily picking on this girl who doesn't say anything bad to her, but, you know, we give her a sedative, and then we basically put her in a snuff film where we cut off her tits. Which, I mean, come on. A tale of two severed titties. <laughs> I mean, it's so stupid that it has to work. Like, really. So, okay, I because uh, the big reference to me in this scene is Peeping Tom, right? Because we have mm-hmm. Mr. Twigs holding a camera, chasing a girl down. We're going to see the fear in her face, blah, blah, blah. Cat Turner's performance... <laughs> I love this. Like, there's a part where she's up against the wall, and, and she, like, waits a beat, and then she starts screaming. But my favorite bit of physical comedy is when we're trying to squeeze her head through this guillotine. Mm-hmm. And rather than, you know, lift the wooden piece that would allow her head to fit in, <laughs> their roundabout solution is, well, we gotta cut something off, so we exactly. just cut off her tits! <laughs> And I love it. I love the look of these tits as they're falling on the ground. I also love Deborah's reading of Mr. Twigs when she's just like, fool, at this point, she's going to have a much needed nose job. And like her literal like Marie Antoinette or whatever you want to call it, get up that she has Mm -hmm. on. Like, what the fuck is this? When Vanessa finally sees Deborah and she's looking at this, she just starts screaming, acid flashback, acid flashback. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and also Cat Turner, a friend of Darren Stein's, like, you know, and he was just like, hey, like, would you do this movie? Like, and she's like, so she's such a serve. Like, I'm watching the scene right now, actually, like, you know, she's in the theater and like, she just like is serving all over the place. I love it. But Joe, so you said, you know, people that don't know, like, they they might be like, oh, well, why is she going after this woman? Mm -hmm. I mean, is there a reason that she goes after this woman or is there a significance to this role or Cat Turner? Uh, I mean, I won't profess to know. I gathered that it's just, you know, because of the electrocution and she's not quite right anymore. She's just sort of constantly on the lookout. But I... I think you could make a reading that because of the way that Veronica looks, that maybe Deborah is assuming, oh, no one's going to miss an outsider figure like this. Actually, now that you mentioned that, because she says, she says to her, she's like, you're new in town, right? And then she, that's why she's going after her because of this, like, oh, you're new in town. She's like, yeah, I'm a little homesick, but you know, it's things like this, da da da. So that's why she's going after her. Because the movie does have a certain level level of commentary about who the victims are right like some of them are just convenient people people who are mean like claire Mm -hmm. but you know i think it's very telling particularly when you know san francisco's unhoused population that we are literally casting people from a soup kitchen (laughs) facade later in the film where you're just like oh the movie's making a commentary about who will not be missed i just love the homeless don't you oh my god Why don't you go after motherfucking Teresa? Yes. I'm yes. feeding the homeless, as it were. <laughs> and then also, yeah, also with this too, is that like, because um, Joshua was literally like, because Cassandra Peterson told him that she didn't really like the idea of this tale of Sue Severed Cities thing. But she did come around at some point to be like, the way he did it was just so like over the top and campy that it works. Right. But her being such a feminist and also a queer woman, you know, and not mm-hmm. wanting to see that. I think I was a little, because I, I saw that too. And I think I was just a little surprised. And again, not coming down on Peterson here. Huh. 
I get the idea, the mere idea of a woman's tits getting cut cut off. Which, by the way, they did mold Turner's breasts um, to, to get these uh, the, the the fake boobies that fall off. The take little babies, yeah. But um, I guess I don't know. It's like okay, like you're in a movie with a drag queen who's making a very campy horror comedy. I guess it was one of those things where it's like you have to see it to be like, oh, you know, it is silly. Mm-hmm. It's silly. But he even had to take it yeah. back and just be like, you know, it'd be one thing, but like, you know, he was all like, you know, oh, like if Cassandra really didn't like that, that would be something he would regret a little bit. We'll talk about another scene that he kind of regrets having in here too, but yeah. Well, he even like, using the word cunt in this movie, you know, he, Grinnell's like, you know, that's something in the drag world, like that word is thrown around a lot. And mm-hmm. I, I sometimes forget <laughs> that, that, that some people are very triggered by that word. That's true. Yeah. When you're putting it into the mouths of people who are not in the drag community or their characters aren't, it plays a little different. Exactly. Yeah. But it's important that you said uh, the sort of feminist critique, Jesse, because that's actually where we're at. So at school the next day, we're introduced to Stephen's best Judy, a literal (laughs) Judy, played by Ariel Hart. And she did not like the short because she thinks it's weird that this female director is being misogynistic. And also, I did love the line catering to Peter Jackson type. (laughs) <laughs> question did y'all want judy to die in this movie yes i did too <laughs> so not because i don't like the character by the time we get to her death sequence i was like no no not just judy. kill her this will actually really hurt steven but it that's the scene where i thought the film is mean enough that we should have killed judy mm, okay you know what yes we can put a pin in that and talk about it at the end yeah true i didn't want her to but you know i can see what you're saying so uh, we are also introduced to a couple of their friends. We have Jean, who is played by Anthony Fitzgerald, as well as bisexual Lolita, who is played by <laughs> Ashley Fink. Mm. Not enough of either of these two characters in this film. I agree. Mm. I, I only know Ashley Fink from Glee. But I, I mean, again, she she makes the most of what she has, what little she has mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. She fares much better than Jean to the point that when I see Jean in the audience at the end, I had forgotten he was in the film. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. Um, Ashley Fink was on Glee, like you said, um, and she had like a song on there where she covered the waitresses, I Know What Boys Like, and then also, because <laughs> she did, and then also, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, she was in the show Huge, maybe? Like, oh, on yeah, yeah. Family. Mm-hmm. Oh, with a Starring unknown... Nikki Blonsky from the movie Hairspray. <laughs> I know, and also an unknown Harvey Guillen as well. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Another queer icon. Another queer icon. Uh, So also in this lunchroom scene, we finally meet Claire Kavanaugh, who is played by (laughs) Lindsay Kale. And you can tell she's a star fucker mean girl right off the top. I love this character. She's very fun. Um, And she asks Steven out only because she wants to know if he knows Deborah. So... They make some plans. They'll go to the movies on Friday. And then we jump back to the theater where Evelyn has left Deborah a note because she has not returned to the library. Evelyn is another one of these characters where you think, but she's so nice. Why is Deborah treating her this way? But Deborah bristles because she's not a fucking minimum wage service employee oh, no. anymore. No, she I've got, is I've got this. a fucking <laughs> filmmaker. I am not a concessionaire. I am an actress. I am a filmmaker. And th- this delivery of, how dare she? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> For knocking on the door. <laughs> it's an outrageous response to a kindliness that someone has done her, which just really tips you off that, oh, this woman is 
bananas bonkers now. Oh. Um, but hey, so but this is when we get this newspaper where they see that these twins are going to get released. But did y'all look mm-hmm. at the other like article headlines on yes. this newspaper? It says no. um, homelessness is up twelve percent uh, in the past year or something in Tramp Sylvania. <laughs> oh my god! Like so dumb. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, so we do decide that we're going to recruit some laborers to help us out with this. So that does include killer twins Vita and Vera, who are played mm-hmm. by Jade and Nikita Ramsey in real life. I think they're good. They, they have they, they all they really do in this movie is stare ominously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like their presence. So we're yeah we're starting to build up this troop of well, more or less serial killers. But <laughs> meanwhile, we still have Stephen acting as the straight man. So he's going to class. He's dealing with Mrs. Moorhead, played by Gwyneth Richards, mm-hmm. and she takes notice of him because she thinks he's a burgeoning terrorist. The, and again, see this this kind of stuff is where I see the more of like again the social commentary. It's very reminiscent of John Waters. I kept seeing people refer to this as a good pairing with Cecil B. Demented, which I think. Absolutely makes sense given the subject matter of both movies. So I love, I, yeah, I love that Peaches is playing in that same wheelhouse as Waters. That's a good pairing, actually. It's not the worst. It's two, it's two sides of a similar coin. Yeah, it, it's pretty like-minded films in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. So Mrs. Moorhead does end up calling Stephen's mother Linda, who overreacts. She initially grounds him, and then she will apologize. And this is the conversation where he. If- effectively says that he's not gay mm-hmm. and then he says that he's in love with an older woman and then we get the very self-aware wink wink nudge nudge where linda looks at his elvira poster haha <laughs> so on the nose but you know what i laugh it works yeah mm-hmm. it's funny it's really funny. i think it's because like <laughs> her expression <laughs> when she's looking at this is just so funny <laughs> <laughs> So what do we think about Stephen admitting that he is heterosexual? And I know that there's been (sighs) conversations about whether or not this is actually true in the aftermath of the film coming out. Because, of course, you know, who among us have not said at some point, no, I'm definitely not gay. I'm 100% straight. It's brave. It's so brave. It's brave. (laughs) (laughs) I will confess, I am disappointed every time I hear him say that. Okay. I do want, I'm genuinely curious if that was part of Grinnell's script or if that was something that was changed after the fact, maybe if that was a compromise between he and Decker's team. I don't, Hmm. I feel like it was probably in Grinnell's script because I don't think Grinnell would have like, I don't think he would have conceded to it. Yeah, I, I agree. But also like, I mean, I don't, he's like, I'm into an older woman. I don't really get any sexual tension between him and Deborah. (laughs) Absolutely not. No, I think he's infatuated. Like, when she says he's obsessed with me, I buy that. But also, I I don't implicitly read Stephen as queer in this. If anything, he seems... Like, I'm not interested in any of that right now because I'm just so excited about what's going on with these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also could be he's also surrounded by women who don't like these kinds of movies. So, hmm. Deborah, I, mean, I guess outside of Ashley Fink's character, but like, yeah, Deborah is like, oh my God, like she's she's making my dreams come true. And that, I mean, that's why he wants to go work at the theater later, right? True. Right. It's yeah. funny. He doesn't really have much of um, chemistry with any of his, like, like with Claire. He doesn't have any of it. So, I think no. that's almost like oh, a God, telling. No. Oh my god, yeah. So it's a telling sign of like, you know, um, I mean, not to say like, you know, oh, I would have known, but like, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. he's not asexual. He's trying to force it a little too much. Yeah, he's not asexual necessarily, I don't think, but like 
See, you could read it, maybe. I, I don't know. It's, maybe. It's interesting, it's interesting because, okay, so, I mean, yes, I, I'm disappointed because I want Thomas Decker's character to be gay because I like Thomas Decker. But I actually, like, I don't know. Like, it, it, I don't even need a romance for this character in this movie. So maybe that's what's what's kind of, like, not rubbing me the wrong way, but I'm not really getting it here because I don't. I don't view this subplot necessarily as particularly vital to the film. Yeah, I mean, you could take out this conversation with his mom and not address his sexuality at all in the film. But at the same time, it's nice to have a mom be like, hey, uh, if you are gay, I'll still love you. Exactly. And that's the whole conceit of it is just, you know, you can tell me anything. And then a lot of the times when someone says that, it's like, okay, no, I'm not gay. Like, oh, you know, so it's like, (laughs) yeah. I'm trying to open the door for you so that you will come out because we both know it. Okay, so uh, we have to recruit one more person for Deborah's troop, and that would be Adrian, played by Noah Segan, having far too much fun in this movie, which is a nice change of pace because I feel like he's always just showing up in Ryan Johnson movies and like weird little bit parts. And I don't know, it, it was fun to see him cut loose a bit more yeah. here. He he is the MVP of this movie for me. I I, I wish he was in it more. I mean, he sure. beats up this woman, steals her fur coat. <laughs> right. And, and then he's like, whatever. I did that girl a favor. Bitch had sloppy yeah. titties anyways. <laughs> and this oh is what I was referencing earlier, is that on the commentary track, Peaches says, like, I would not have this scene in my movie today if it was made today just because of the whole like you know um violence against asian folks in san francisco particularly um like literally he was like if i made this movie today like again this movie i don't know if it could get made today just because with pc culture or whatever but he also was like it was so ridiculous in 2009 when we shot it that you don't even think about it and then it's not until you look at it in a different way and you can only uh, look it's only so prudent to look at art you know through a certain lens i guess but i just thought i'd mention that just because like you know he did literally say it on the commentary track i guess again for me it's this thing where it's like in a movie like this this queer campy button pushing like not pc uh film i I get where peaches is coming from and like yeah sure i i think you should keep the scene maybe just swap out the person he's beating up if you want to avoid those kind of connections but yeah it's just like I don't know. I just in a film like this, I'm less offended by these types of things. But again, it's easy for me to say that as a cisgender white man. And also just some truths like, for example, like you were saying, Joe, like with the unhoused population in San Francisco. I mean, obviously, like they poke a little fun of calling it Transylvania or whatever. But that's because that's a reality for somebody who lives in San Francisco. Like you just so happen to see people who are unhoused and it's just kind of a way of life. Like you just see people because that's economy and capitalism and all that stuff. But when you see something like this in a movie, again, you don't think of it in 2009 when you're making it. It's a reality of you just living in San Francisco and that's just something you are going to see on a daily basis. Uh, They also talk about just shooting in San Francisco and how that was just a weird time. Um, but right. anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, but, the, but, the, the, but the, again, that's kind of inside baseball stuff. I, I, I have been to San Francisco twice in my life. I don't know any of these ins and outs. This kind of like, again, True. inside baseball factoids or aspects of San Francisco that Grinnell is incorporating into the film. Sure. But I think you can also look at a film that's predominantly white and be like, oh, oh there's sure. one Asian character in this movie. Yeah, sure. Okay. There's one black girl in it, you know, all that. There are two Asian characters because the other Asian oh, character yeah. is the one that's making the fire in the <laughs> diner when they're all planning that stuff. That guy, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, also, too, I was going to say, like, um, 
I also don't think this movie is in really it's not in bad taste, I don't think. I think it's more so just... Um, it's edging up to it, I'm yeah, sure. Like, I there's mean, some yeah. things where you think, oh, these lines are a little bit risque, That's you know? Fair. I don't think someone with, quote-unquote, good taste would include it. That's fair. But I think that's also inherently part of the film's charm. Like, yeah. you're not coming to this movie looking for PC. I, I was going to say, you're saying this movie's not in poor taste, but we just watched a woman's titties get cut off. No, that's true. You also said it was mean, <laughs> so what do I know? <laughs> but, but, but again, like, that is intentional. Like, that's part it of is. the camp of this movie yeah, and tell me if y'all agree or disagree do y'all i feel like we had a couple years of a lot of really intense pushback against like this type of material and i feel like we're as a society maybe we're edging a little bit back into like being okay with poor taste if it's handled quote unquote correctly i mean for me at least like i enjoy a movie like not another teen movie because it's so over the top but i i actually think that movie is really smart with some of its casting choices oh that movie is very smart to be it, that stupid. it is yes and it's the last good parody movie that there is because i've seen not an uh a, what is it not another gay movie and that shit was awful oh boy no so... it's it's it's, ju- it's just another gay movie there are two of them um oh, i will geez. say those movies I didn't like them when I saw them in college because I was like, this is really stupid. I do think they play, for me personally, I think they play a little bit better. They're still bad, but mm-hmm. I kind of am more open to this like queer aesthetic that those films have. Right. Kind of, sort of. Yeah, I can get with that. But yeah, <laughs> but no, I, uh, but I think like, you know, I can appreciate a movie like that, I guess, or just something that's supposed to be over the top. But yeah, I don't know. What was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> No, I mean, it, it, I, I was merely just positing or speculating about how like, we as a culture are like shifting towards maybe being more accepting towards un-PC things. I think it depends on just like who you are, because for me, like, I like that kind of stuff. Like, I can, un- like, I watched Euro Trip at the beginning of this month, and like, that movie's like super fun, but it's awful. Uh, okay, but, 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 like, but like, Euro Trip could be in the same conversation as like American Pie, right? Like, I see people That's complain true. about American Pie all all the time for the Shane Elizabeth scene, you know, where he films her without her knowledge. And that's part of the joke of that movie. And at the time, like, that was the joke. Whereas a movie like this, yeah, they're doing that, but it's it's very much like they know it's wrong. And it's it's part of the commentary that's in the comedy. Yeah. I, again, I think it also just depends on, like, who's watching it. Because I can only imagine, like young people watching Heathers and being like, do you get offended by that? You know what I mean? It's like I don't know. It's crazy. Well, yeah, Heather's a movie that's a comedy about suicide. <laughs> it is. And that's the thing. And I covered it on my show with a guest of mine. And, like, it was great. But we were definitely like, yeah, so this whole thing's about suicide. Well, this movie could not get made nowadays. Right. And, in fact, we tried to do it as a TV show and it did not make it to air. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, you know, but for someone like me, I loved that movie. That's a great little movie. But maybe someone... But it also goes back to, like, that Heather's TV show. I think we got our answer, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and the, I mean, sorry, we, we can get back to the movie in a second. But the thing it's is, fine. the Heather's TV show did eventually air. Did. They aired nine of the ten episodes. And they re-edited the last episode, like the finale, parts of it into that ninth episode. Because it involves a school blowing up yeah. and all the kids inside dying. All the characters die in the Heather's finale in a bomb. But it was during, like, all these school shootings and, like, you know, stuff. And so they were like, oh, it's not in, like, good taste to release this now. And so to this day, you cannot find the actual finale of that show by legal means. Yep. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go back to the movie. You're fine. It's all good. <laughs> no, it all ties back in because the whole conversation with um, Steven and him thinking that. Yes. They, yeah, it ties all back in. 
Okay, so folks, we have reached Evelyn's. I I thought it was a death scene, but I guess we don't kill her right now. We keep the body for later. Mm-hmm. But what do we think of the shh and stock scene? I I like this a lot. <laughs> but but I, tell me if y'all noticed this. So basically, when they're finally attacking Evelyn, Grinnell breaks the one hundred and eighty degree rule when they grab her through these shelves. Okay, that felt odd, but I couldn't quite place why. It's not that it doesn't work. It's just that something felt off different than the way that you would normally see it portrayed. Because it's essentially breaking content. Everyone with the 180 degree rule means like, you know, we're looking at a a scene from a certain side. And in the next shot, we're on the other side of this like 180 degree line. So it's like, oh, all of a sudden, like a hand's grabbing Mink stole from the left side of the screen. But in the next shot, it's on the right side of the screen. And we're seeing her from from the opposite angle. And it's often very disorienting for a viewer because you don't have a good sense of spatial geography. Yes. And so I thought at first this might have been intentional on Grinnell's part. But apparently this was one of the hardest scenes to shoot because of the library setting. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think they were scheduled for four nights and it required a lot of rewrites because they kept having to lose pages and still make sure that they could keep the continuity so it it sounded like this was not fun to do and also i think they cut out a whole scene where they kill the janitors or something like because then you think of like what's going on with the janitors i think they probably shot a scene of it and then they ended up not using it because i don't know they just couldn't well yeah because they walk in and they're like the janitors are dead and it's like oh okay (laughs) just sure okay let's go along with well, it. all right then. I think Mink Stoll is a real trooper in this scene, though. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I love her goodnight books line, but also the way she kind of runs around this library. It's like Cindy mm-hmm. Campbell in Scary Movie. Yes. She's like, I'm not crazy. Oh my <laughs> God. It's so good. It's like a half jog, but lady, you're meant to be running for your life. <laughs> so good. No, it's hilarious. And also, just like, you know, commending her. She was also like a real professional on the set. She literally like had a legal pad because she couldn't talk and she just wrote hurry up on it. And just like, Aww. Oh, because her lips were so shut. Yeah, yeah, you know, but trooper. I actually, because here's the thing, you know, the first death with the titties, you know, like she turns into this like, oh, don't use your cell phones PSA for the movie theater, which, which I love, by the way. I'm really surprised that the draft house hasn't taken that, but maybe because of the content of the short, <laughs> yeah. like, that's why they won't do it. Even in France, cell phones are rude. Yes. But even with this, like, shh means shut the fuck up, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's very fun. Yeah, so this short does become the maiming of the shrew and it incites big lines now outside of the theater so the word of mouth is really truly starting to take off to the extent that now we have morning fog reporter peter george who is played by patrick bristow showing up to interview people in line including Stephen and claire who are there on their date i think it's peter gorge oh it is gorge yes you're right joe do you recognize patrick bristow thrust it yes I have it in my notes. Peter George thrusts it. Oh, my God. (laughs) But this is also when we get Claire at this fucking theater and she's just (laughs) no butter. No butter (laughs) (laughs) on her popcorn. And she also insults Deborah. So, of course, we know she's got to go. So, Joe, I agree with you. I think this character is great because, again, like compared to Judy and I, I think Judy is fine, but like. We all love a mean girl, right? Sure. Get yeah. Into it. Well, and again, this, this is like really like uh, uh, on the nose, eye roll humor, but it's like she looks like a drag queen as Peaches Christ stands right beside her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mm-hmm. never. With Martini with her <laughs> in tow. 
So uh, I think the final straw that breaks Deborah's back is when Claire gets up in the middle of her very sentimental speech about her father as she's introducing the next short. So Claire has to go and she is immediately killed in the bathroom. I love that she farts while she's peeing and then laughs at her fart. (laughs) Again, relatable content. Yes. But yeah, I, I think this death scene is really fun. I mean, it's not as it's not creative because she just gets stabbed a bunch of times. But it is the goriest, I think. It a hundred percent is the goriest, and I do just again just like the, the the visual of like Adrian and Mr. Twigs like going over the divider in the stall to shoot her, and it's mm-hmm. just like all these people cr- trying to crowd into this stall with this girl. I think is great. I really like the point of view shot from Claire's perspective mm-hmm. as Deborah leans in. We should note that Deborah also gets like a complete makeover so that she's like ultra hot as soon as she yes. goes mad yeah. so she's really doing the hair up and the red lip and all that kind of stuff like she comes into her own when she starts mm-hmm. to murder people yeah. mm-hmm. this is also taken from grindhouse too because this was also a part of that as well yeah i i watch grindhouse on the blu-ray i mean basically yeah this scene mm-hmm. is in there the scene when she kills her mother is in there and basically grinnell plays the peter gorge character okay So this is when I got the shock that Evelyn is actually still alive and just hanging out in the attic, but she doesn't last much longer. Twigs decapitates her and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this fun basically foreshadowing device where we just keep seeing blood or viscera dripping out of the attic and you know, well, more will have to come down eventually. Oh, yeah, just put that in your back pocket. It'll probably come back in the climax. For a lot of people, this is, like, something they can't watch because of Mink stole um, Evelyn's character. You know, like, her, like, ripping off the the that. And it's Ooh. just, like, for some people, they're like, no, I can't good. do it. And then that's why she gets her head cut off because she can't be screaming like that. Well, because the closest thing I could think to this is um, House of Wax. Alicia Cuthbert in House of Wax. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so because Claire obviously has disappeared, I do love the fact that we're just bringing out mops and garbage bags as Stephen is asking, hey, have you God. seen Claire? Oh, yeah, I think she got in a cab uh-huh. and just left. Um, I'm sorry, no. Um, Was she wearing a sassy pink juicy? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, oh 2009. <laughs> I love this character so much. That's great. <laughs> But Stephen ends up more or less starting to take the fall where he becomes mm-hmm. prime suspect because of the way that Mrs. Moorhead has been looking at him. Claire's friends suddenly start to put pieces together. Hey, she was with you and now she's not answering her phone. What is going on? You're scary. So this is also where we start to get introduced to Claire's friend Janine, who is played by mm-hmm. Santia Andrews. And she basically has a laser focus on Stephen as a yes. perpetrator. This character. <laughs> Again, I could have done more. I I just wanted more with all of the supporting mm-hmm. characters. Well, because here's the thing, though. Like, yes, you're right. She comes in. She's like, oh, my God, like you, you you're the one that killed yeah. her, blah, blah, blah. And we kind of keep that through line into the climax, but then mm-hmm. she just kind of, like, stops caring yeah, about that. Well, she is dying well, yes, at that exactly. point, admittedly. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know she's dying. Um, this is true. <laughs> I don't think she knows she's dying until after she's dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> drunk, 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 yes, drunk. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're up to the scene where Deborah and Mr. Twigs make out. Yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> like, why? This is something that never goes anywhere, but it's... It's uncomfortable for me because they have such a surrogate father-daughter oh, relationship. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say age difference, and I was going to clock you, Joe. Wow. So good for you. <laughs> I ain't no ageist. 
Hey, but you know what, though? Surrogate father figure, this is going back into that poor taste we're talking about. It's not mm-hmm. quite incest, but it might as well be. Right. It definitely reads as a, ooh, these two? What are we doing? No. But, but again, it comes to nothing like at all. This, no. this yeah, is it's it. It's kind of in there for like <laughs> random whatever. Yeah, just oddball. But um, Judy arrives. She is pretending to be a reporter, not for the high school news. And she finds Claire's bedazzled mm-hmm. cell phone and good on Judy for immediately figuring it out, <laughs> trying to keep her wits about her. And if we hadn't locked the door and surrounded her, she would have gotten yeah, out. True. But they, for some reason, they decide not to kill her <laughs> and they mm-hmm. just keep her locked I know, up. In I the was attic. kind of wondering about that. I know. I was just like, why didn't they just kill her? But also one of the other things, too, is that flip phones, I think, also date this, too, because <laughs> they even said that. They're just A like, little wow. Bit. But yeah. that phone is everything. Oh. Well, that's what, okay. So, Joe, that's what you were saying. You said earlier, you know, oh, like we're in the present day, which is what the movie says. And so, you're, oh, you're thinking mm-hmm. it's 2010. However, I feel like at some point in the movie, they say 16 years later, which would make uh, okay. this movie the year 2000. Mm, okay. okay. Yeah. I, I didn't pay close enough attention to any of the fashion to see if there were different cues, but I'm imagining we probably didn't have a huge budget to do period if we... Plus, also, we didn't have flip phones like that in 2000, I don't think. Like, at least, I don't know. Well, but I think even by 2010, the razors were kind of on their way out. So it's like, mm-hmm. ah, whatever. You know what? Maybe this film is timeless and it's not set at any one it's particular anachronistic time. In that way. Well, that's the thing, though, because yes, because it, it says present day. That so, yeah. Present day is whenever you're exactly. watching it, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also, have you ever acted before? Because you're not very good. <laughs> okay, I just also love that it's like, did you take our cell? Did you take our cell phone? Like ours, like the it's, whole it's group. All cell phones. <laughs> because they all are on the family plan. <laughs> They're so indignant about anything that they take offense to, you know, (laughs) that's one of the the campiest things to me about this movie is just the ridiculously over the top reactions to things where you're just like, well, normal people. Oh, okay. They're big. They're broad. Got it. That's the thing, though. All these. It's a testament to Thomas Decker, Cassandra Peterson, all these other like these straight people Mm -hmm. that they do make as much of an impression as they do because they're playing against this cast of characters. Yes, which is maybe why we don't spend as much time with some of them, because they would eat this movie. Oh, yeah, 100%. Okay, so at this point, Stephen is now fully being accused by Claire's Mm -hmm. parents, Miss Moorhead, Principal Hunter, who is played by Timmy Spence. Where is Claire? We suspect you have done something. You're not a good person. Enter Detective Woods, because, of course, we always have to have a detective (laughs) in these movies, played by Nicholas Beard. And I like that he is reasonably smart. Like, he believes Stephen when he says, I didn't do anything. And also he acknowledges, oh, we have no evidence. This is all just hearsay. Also, fun fact is Timmy Spence was the original mom in Grindhouse. So lovely for that. Oh. In in drag. Okay. So then we get to see Morning Fog live as Deborah is being interviewed and we're screening a clip of this snuff film <laughs> on what is I'm presuming this is a yeah, morning it's like show. Basic cable. Our name. <laughs> Wake up San Francisco, you know, what uh, I mean? that kind of thing. Well, th- they woke up. <laughs> <laughs> So Linda is not a fan of this, and she doesn't understand Stephen's fascination with it. But because she's a good mom, she is going to attend the screening on Friday to try to understand. I also love that in this, like, literally, like, this is a 
almost it's not a complete recreation but it literally is homaging the betty davis interview with dick cavett specifically the way she looks in this and all of that just so Mm -hmm. her smoking it's so good uh it speaks for itself like it's so good oh i guess yeah even her even her hairstyle is very betty davis like yeah okay that makes sense also we get our um producer cameo with darren stein in this as well so that's fun too i was actually okay maybe i'm reaching too far here but given this whole oh like uh uh, steven's mom wants to understand this stuff so Mm -hmm. she's gonna go go to the movie plays a little queer i was gonna say don't you get queer allegory like oh have you tried not being a slayer (laughs) (laughs) right right i mean i yeah and it's showing that she's open and i think that's just all it really is so it can definitely read into that queer part of it i mean it's not literal i just think it's like there's like a bit of a metaphor allegory going on there have you ever tried not being a horror fan i just think it's and yeah it's just showing that like she loves him and she wants to understand this and all that which again is just so funny because like yeah it's elvira doing this like it's just so good i mean part of me imagines a version of this film obviously it wasn't shot but i could see something where we actually have a dialed down version of elvira as Uh the mom right like put cassandra peterson into a sexier made up up and have her say all of these things and i think all of a sudden it would read very queer but do you think that part of the joke is uh, the movie would it be as funny to not have cassandra peterson be like the exact opposite type of character she normally plays oh no i think that's why it's successful it's like the hairspray effect of it all i mean obviously divine is like this like glamazon you know godzilla jane mansfield but then her in hairspray she's not that at all right yeah so this is when Stephen and Detective Woods investigate the theater because we're we're looking for Claire, but also Judy is now missing. <laughs> so this is where we see that they are casting unhoused people to the point where it looks like she's just stockpiling people in the they attic are. for yes. future short films. <laughs> I'm sorry, but one of my favorite lines, Adrian, there's an attractive crazy lady. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I I wonder if they're like, oh, yeah, we have a home for you. Just right up there in the attic. Don't mind the dead bodies. Yeah. Well, you know what? We'll give you shelter and some food from the concession. So maybe you're already doing better. Who knows? I love the homeless people. Yeah. So this is where Deborah basically points the finger back at Stephen because it's pretty easy to paint him as an obsessed fan who did indeed ask to work at the theater, but she is very abrasive to the detective. Oh, she's not convincing in the slightest. But they do manage to get them out of there because they do not have a warrant, but she more or less teases and mocks Stephen by saying, hey, I'm debuting my feature, and I think your girlfriend's in it, so you should come back Friday. (laughs) God. Which we then immediately cut to. Presumably, Friday was not the next day, so Judy's just been hanging out here as a prisoner for the rest of the school week? Uh, Tied to a chair, pooping her pants. I'm sorry, pooping her dress. (laughs) I guess, for sure. So... As promised, Glinda has arrived. She is in line. She will participate in this. And we're letting folks in and serving them complimentary beverages for a Mm -hmm. toast. And of course, we all know where this is heading. To the point that Peaches Christ says, oh my god. It's how Jonestown. (laughs) So Janine is there Mm -hmm. as well. She drinks the complimentary beverage and the twins bar the door. The whole time, Stephen is acting 
like he's out of his mind. But of course, yeah. we all know as the audience that he is speaking the truth when he says, you know, she's a killer. Don't drink this. You're going to die. It's poisoned and so on. So after Janine dies from her poison drink and a couple of other people, this is when Stephen rushes backstage because we're seeing footage of Judy still alive. So he knows he can save her. And we realize all of these doors are locked. And then bodies start to fall That's from true. the attic. I'm sorry. Wait, if you have not seen this movie, though, the look of this girl who has drank, what, four cyanide yes. cups? Mm -hmm. As she just, her face gets more and more oh deformed and pussy. And she's just acting like everything. Exactly. <laughs> like, what is going on? It's going on here, and then also uh, back to MVP of the show, Adrian, the wig. Like, come on now. Oh, his, his tutu, tutu <laughs> the wig. Uh, amazing. Like, it's just like he went full out. It's I, honestly like I would have killed to just be on the production of this film because it looks like they had so much fun making this. Either that, or they had absolutely no fun because it was so hectic trying to do something on this scale on how long they were shooting and for a little and yeah. for so little money. Do y'all think any of the uh, like momentum kind of dies down during this climax? Do we think as a climax this works? Um, yes, I do think like looking at the movie and so I do think the climax does work here. I know you mentioned that I think in your letterbox review you were like yeah there's some pacing issues here and there but I think if you think of the denouement and all that or whatever like the climax and then that um, it's like <laughs> yeah sure like I think this works as a climax and makes sense I think for me personally I'm more interested in all the stuff with the theater patrons than I am in the drama between Steven and Judy and like is oh, she gonna yeah. die blah 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 I, right. I don't mind it as much once we, once we get to the roof but I kind of yeah again I, well also because by this point like all of our sidekicks are mostly dead I mean, part of the problem, too, is that we do the exact same story beat twice in a row. So, oh, look, we've got Judy. We need to go yes. save Judy. And then we get Judy. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, you've got my mom. Now we need to go save my mom. Right. And again, I appreciate that the movie isn't mean enough to kill Judy because she's a good character. She's Steven's mm -hmm. best friend. But judging from what we've seen before... I don't know why Judy isn't dead. And I think we could have just gone straight to mom. Oh, I tried to rescue mom. We're up on the roof. I agree with you because here's the thing. Yes, we need to kill Judy in this movie in front of the audience. And that's when like shit right. starts mm -hmm. to go down. Yes. I do think and here's the thing because like yeah, whatever this hostage shit. But what I love. So, you know, Deborah is holding Linda on this roof and she just starts going like bat shit you know she's, mm -hmm. she's doing her sobbing they're like yeah. daddy daddy if you watch cassandra peterson during this scene like because mm -hmm. she has no line she's act like she's like scared or whatever but there's a part where once natasha leone starts like sobbing doing her daddy speech cassandra peterson like looks off to the right and you can see her crack a smile because <laughs> she's oh, trying right. not to laugh know, at all of this so good. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. Like, we we have not heaped enough praise on Natasha Leone for, it's great. you know, really, it is her and Decker oh, yeah. who are kind of holding this movie together. But she gets to go big in exactly the right way. Like, she is a caricature. She is over the top. She's absolutely ridiculous. But she is having so much fun. And that is so fun for us to watch. I also just love the nods to like, uh, I got very much like Carrie through this as well because of that. Cause everyone, like the doors are all locked and like they can't get out. And even some of the colors, um, the lighting as well, like it, not red, but like, you know, some green mm -hmm. and in there as well. I thought that was really fun. And then of course, Suspiria because you have like maggots falling from the ceiling. <laughs> I mean, and look, like, like massacres in a theater aren't like necessarily a new thing for the horror genre, but also I was getting 
Something that I think might have taken inspiration from this was the season one finale of Chucky. Oh, okay. Oh. Hmm. Again, I don't know if it was actually an homage or anything, but like, again, like yeah. very similar. Sure, sure, sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. It's an absolutely fantastic location to set horror films in. I feel like every time we see people going to the movies and there's a sustained set piece there, it always ends up being really iconic or really memorable, yeah. really yeah. visually interesting. Like you can do a lot of fun things with a oh movie theater. See Popcorn mm-hmm. from 1991. Popcorn, Scream 6, Demons, oh, okay. like uh, The Last Matinee, a bunch really good of good ones. ones. Yeah, we do need to cover Popcorn. I've also never seen The Last. Oh, no, Ma- it's Matinee, isn't it, Joe Dante? I'm thinking of the Spanish There is Matinee. Oh, is Joe Dante. oh, shit. Yeah. So yes, there is matinee and there is the last yeah. matinee. <laughs> please, cover, I forgot please about that one because that movie is fucking great. Uh, it's also got a queer connection because I think the killer in that movie, the actor, when there's is a queer. juicy story, ooh, girl, I'll come back on for that because listen, there's a juicy story with that too. <laughs> and I've never seen it, so I would be happy to finally check it out. Uh, okay, yeah, what else is happening? We've got Twigs insulting both Lolita and Judy. This is where we are dropping the c word. It feels. I'm not going to lie, a little out of character for Twigs yeah. to say this, but he is an older gentleman who... He's also deranged. Know. Well, it, <laughs> it feels it feels more of a character for Twigs, but then like right before we had Deborah saying, I'm going to kill that cunt yeah, to Judy. But that feels mm, in character. Too, <laughs> a little more in character, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do love that Judy knocks Twigs out with the film reel, mm-hmm. of course, and then Lolita just goes oh, to town hell with this no. guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is all <laughs> good. The insult, the double mint twins. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, just listen, double mint. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I love that. That's a good time. Oh, good times. But yeah, all the stuff on the roof, it's good. You know, it feels like we've been building up to this moment. So it's appropriate in terms mm-hmm. of the scale, the scope. We kind of knew it was going to come down to, if not Linda being in the mix, we knew that something had to happen to either get her out of there or bring her into the action. So this makes sense. And then watching Deborah fall <laughs> in her Jack Nicholson Batman <laughs> slow motion yeah. down. And I love her spraying Viscera yeah. all over Miss Moorhead, who of course is still pointing oh the finger God, at Stephen yeah. the whole time. Yeah. I love this. Um are are we a little upset that Deborah ends up like our whole team ends up dead and like the straight people end up just walking away fine? <laughs> I kind of wanted it to be the opposite. I kind of wanted like Thomas Decker, his mom, and all these people to die, and for Deborah and her team to just keep keep on like doing their snuff films. Well, of course, because as she said, you cheer for the villains. Yeah, you want to see right. them win. I also, um, I haven't finished this movie, uh, maybe because it's I don't know, boring. But I was also thinking of like, um, fate. Have you seen Paid to Black ever? Either one of you? Yes, I have. Like, seen does Paid it give Black. you a little bit of that? Like, not too much, but like, it's on the top of Grauman's Chinese theater like it's this horror fan who like yeah. whatever yeah I mean it's I have finished I think I think Fade to Black is fine I, I it, that was one, another one of those movies like like uh, all about evil that hit yes. Shudder uh, after years of being unavailable and mm-hmm. I think it was during the pandemic because everyone I, I, everyone on social media was talking about mm-hmm. it so I was like fine I'll watch yeah. this fucking movie so it got overhyped is what you're saying I, I, I thought it was fine I liked it I liked it I thought it was fine um, I didn't quite get the big deal about right. it but um, I don't think it's bad I think it's because it's self-aware, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, at a time where people were like, oh, I thought Scream yeah. was the first one to do that, which is 
inherently not true. There's there plenty are. of other movies that are self-aware and meta, yeah. but yeah, I think that's one of the ones that people say, oh, it's an underseen film that was also yeah. doing that. Yeah, I think, yeah, with that film, I think I'm more impressed with what it's doing more so than I am with the execution of what it's doing. <laughs> But back to all about evil. So the original, um, my only issue with this ending is I do feel like the movie just kind of ends in the script. Apparently what was going to happen was that they had the budget for it. The theater was going to be set on fire. Makes sense. And then the marquee was going to fall on Deborah's body and crush her even more. (laughs) Oh, yeah. See, that would have been expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I will say seeing the twins come out and just stab each other to death in front of everybody is unexpected and quite interesting i wrote my notes they billions do each other (laughs) (laughs) and the other thing too is that they don't scream like that and that was part of their audition was that they were like did we even like because i think that was like part of the audition was them to like stab each other or whatever Mm. oh but see I like that they don't scream because the vibe I get from them the whole time is like Wednesday. Oh Adams. yeah, totally. And and yes. so I think that was also something that was kind of unique to them, which is kind of what got their cast. Honestly, was that like yeah, like did we even sure. like make a sound like they, they in their heads they're like did we even like scream or anything? But they were like breathing at the same time, which kind of helps because you're a twin. So like you know <laughs> that just set them apart, right. which is really interesting. So to wrap things up, we have our favorite friendly radio television news uh-huh. personality guy show up and he tries to catch Stephen I think in a bit of a lie so he asks Stephen you know how do you feel about her now and Stephen says well this isn't a movie so it's awful because if it was a movie she would still be alive she would come back for one last scare yeah I mean again that that, that also feels very scream to me right Um, Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's fine it's I kind of wish, again, I kind of wish it would come to something, but again, I feel like this movie just kind of ends, and I don't know if it was because they ran out of time or out of money, or if it was the intended, well, not the intended ending, because again, we have this marquee thing going on, but it feels a little bit like half-assed commentary I, I can agree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, also, it's like a thing of, you know, like, oh, you think this of this person. It goes back to, like, um, Heather's a little bit, where it's like, you know, that's the whole kind of joke of that movie, is that, like, when someone dies it's like if they were a shitty person in real life like they somehow become this like ephemeral ethereal thing right a martyr and so like you know but it's like yeah maybe i liked her at one time because she was this chick who liked horror movies but no she was a fucking murderer so no i don't really like her now that i know all this but i I, not that i ever think grinnell would do this in this screenplay but i do love that the idea is not Oh, hey, that everyone was right. Horror exactly. is bad. Right. Like, like Stephen will still continue to like horror movies. He will still want to make horror movies. He just won't want to make snuff films. That's true. <laughs> yes. Hopefully yeah. not. Until All About Evil 2. Honestly, if we got like a 20 years later thing, like I'd be uh, totally yeah. fine with it. They also, I mean, in the round table or whatever, they did talk about like maybe doing that kind of Grand Guignol, like, like um, you know, musical or whatever. And honestly, if you retool it a little bit, I wouldn't be mad at all about evil musical. Like, honestly. We haven't had a really notable uh, a horror movie musical in years. Uh, you know, I feel like when people talk about it, it's always mm-hmm. Rocky Horror, Repo. Sweeney Todd. And in the Apocalypse. And the, oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. That was the last one. That's the last big one that I I can remember it was 2017 right but yeah i would gladly welcome that uh yeah shit yeah, why sure. not yeah so 
basically the movie is over as told by the police the show is over go home disperse (laughs) (laughs) and then over the credits we get to see posters of all of deborah's films with their fantastic Mm -hmm. punny titles so we've got the satanic Mm -hmm. nurses the diary of anne frankenstein i know why the caged girl screams anne mcdeath and oh and gore and peace gore there we go uh fun fact too diary of anne frankenstein is one of the shorts in chillerama oh oh so and 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 that would have come out a year after this (laughs) interesting um that has been all about evil everybody uh jesse as the guest of honor final thoughts on this film final thoughts on this film is that i think that if you are a fan of campy films if you're a fan of just like gore and comedy and a horror comedy i think this is right up your alley don't go into it with too high of expectations you know what i mean uh but i think you can go into it just having a good time and uh i think you'll be surprised and what i love too is that also um it has this cult following and it just worked very cosmically in this way because peaches christ herself is such a cult queen you know what i mean and so the fact that her mm-hmm. movie became this kind of cult film because really because of finances and money and you know distribution stuff like it couldn't really get released right. um it's kind of been able to get this. And that's the reason why like bloody disgusting and Fangoria or whoever else covered this thing of like, Hey, remember that weird film with Natasha Leone and whatever, like it's getting released finally. Right. Um, otherwise like, you know, which is probably why most people would listen to this episode or whatever it is. And, you know, yeah, it's like, um, that's why it has this kind of thing within the horror community. And um, I think it's super fun. Again, align your expectations, you know, but it's a super fun time. I put this in the vein of uh, a little bit better of a drop, uh, death drop gorgeous. Like they live in the same neighborhood. Yeah, I could yeah, see that. I could absolutely. see that. Yeah. Uh, the production values and death drop gorgeous are appear much lower than this yes, film. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, Joe, final thoughts? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's a good time. I like how excessively queer it is and just how it loves horror movies and it kind of celebrates that. Yeah. So it's a good time. I I don't know that I'm going to like add it to a regular rotation queue or anything, but as a first time watch, this was very enjoyable. Uh, yeah, this is a have a group of friends over with booze movie. I think it's very fun. I'm very glad that I was introduced to this a couple years or last year. And I'm very happy now that it is widely available that anyone can access it. So, again, get a couple drinks um, and get a couple friends and have fun with this movie. Because at the very end of the day, that is all – that's not all this is, but it is fun. Yeah, (laughs) right. All right. Well, before we announce that we're covering next week, uh, Jesse, first, thank you for joining us for this. And let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Thank you guys so much for having me on. Um, you know, I reached out to you um, not uh, like almost last year or whatever, and I'm so glad that you had me on. I'm such a fan of the show, and uh, I'd love to come back, of course, as well. But thank you for so much for having me on. To plug myself, mm-hmm. um, so I run a podcast called cult cinema circle where i cover all sorts of cult classic cinema so i've covered everything from like jawbreaker romeo michelle frankenhooker all sorts of shit (laughs) um and i bring guests on every so often so you know but if you'd like you can find me wherever you get your podcasts uh so it's cult cinema circle it's also on youtube um i upload the stuff there so if you want to listen to it on there that's cool um and you can follow the show on instagram at cult cinema circle on twitter if you'd like i don't post there a whole lot but it's cult 
called Cinecircle. And then go follow my letterbox at uh, Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. It's pretty much my account, but also it's like the show's account, I guess. And you can see my dumb little, you know, movie reviews on there and see what I've been watching. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated films for that month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want even more content, support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We're wrapping up July, so sign up to get nearly 254 hours of extra content. This month, we're continuing our journey into the further with episodes on the whole Insidious franchise, plus Patrick Wilson's new sequel, The Red Door. We're also double dipping on Bird Box, talking about Bird Box Barcelona, and an audio commentary on the original Sandra Bullock starring film. Rounding out the month, we'll also have an episode on Marianne director Samuel Bowden's new film, Cobweb. Uh, Joe. Yes. What are we talking about next week? Well, I don't think we're quite ready to leave film behind, but we're going to move from moving pictures to still photography, Trace. Ooh. So we finally, we're gradually running out of movies that we have covered as an editorial back in the day. Mm-hmm. But this is one of the last ones we're going to be talking about. The Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh, girl. There ain't no the in that title. It is just Eyes of Laura Mars. Just Eyes of Laura Mars. There's no the. I have made that mistake <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, everyone, if you never heard of this, uh, really, really, really good, co-written by John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, starring queer icon Faye Dunaway. So, there we go. until next week, we can cross out All About Evil. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. 